follow along. So Luke chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first few verses of Luke chapter 7 this morning. Now we, um, we titled, when we began our look through the gospel of, of Luke, uh, I gave it a, a sort of overarching title to our study through that, and that is, there is a wideness in God's mercy. Uh, and what we have seen, even from the very beginning of the study of Luke's gospel, is that he is, he is interested in showing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not just a Jewish Messiah, but that he came to be a Savior for people of all tongues and languages and places. And uh, so here, in the text that we're about to read this morning, Luke makes a very large and very deliberate step to showing that to be true, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of all people and that there is a great wideness in God's mercy. The story we're about to read, the account we're about to read in the first part of Luke chapter 7, is a refreshing story. Um, I have just loved spending time reading over this passage and thinking through it this week as uh, I prepared. So let's read this morning from Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 10 verses here. It says, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel." And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word and glean some truths from this beautiful and refreshing passage of faith, encourage us this morning in both our faith and in our sharing of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a... Um, a story which is, is beautiful in its simplicity. There's a very simple, simple aspect to this and a simple beauty here, and, and I don't want to get in the way of that this morning. And so my thoughts this morning are going to be, well, I think succinct, uh, I hope, and, and simple so that we can see the beauty of what's gone on here and see what Jesus does. And I think... Because of the simple beauty of, the past, of, of what took place, I think that's why Luke treats it the way he does. He treats it very straightforwardly, very simply, in the way he goes about describing this passage for us. Your faith isn't complicated, which is what the passage is about. It's about faith, and 
really faith isn't isn't complicated and and for that reason that's part of what makes faith such a beautiful thing that it is not a complicated thing in Luke 7 verse 9 in the text where we've just read of the man we see here the centurion we see here Jesus says I say to you I have not found such great faith not even in Israel a faith which it tells at the beginning of that verse has Jesus marvel or astounded amazed at what he sees and what he has been involved in in this very moment. This is one of two times that we're told in the Gospels that Jesus is amazed. The other time, the first, of course, is here where he is amazed at the faith of a man. The other time is when he's in Nazareth and he is amazed at the lack of faith of the people in Nazareth. Uh, But this is a story about faith in Jesus. That's what this is is about, and it's beautiful, and it's simple, uh, and it shows us the simplicity and the beauty of putting our faith in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to quickly uh, look at some simple lessons of faith from this centurion that we read of here. And the first lesson I think we want to look at this morning is that real faith results in action. Real faith results in in action, And what we see as we look at the context, firstly, is we see here a dearly loved servant. He is a dearly loved servant that is, we're told, dying in pain. One of the compelling aspects of this story is its context. What takes place and how this all works together and why Jesus does what he does here. The, the events are amazing and the truths that we find are astounding. The emotion through the passage uh, that is involved with the people is raw and, and very needy. In fact, a, a whole town almost here is moved by the sickness of a slave. The sickness of a slave is what puts almost a whole town into motion. The, the rulers and the heads of a town are moved by the sickness of a slave. All of this surrounds a centurion slave that's dying. His slave is dying, and it's interesting because Luke is a doctor, and we've seen some of the details and the way that he expresses that, but as Luke writes this, the doctor, he doesn't give us a lot of details. In fact, he gives us really very little detail about what ails this slave. He keeps it simple because the sickness isn't the focus for Luke here, and often that's the case that the circumstances or the sickness or whatever it is that's, that's bringing turmoil or trouble in our life is not the key fact, is not the key problem. It's what happens around those circumstances. It's what happens because of those circumstances which makes that moment, that aspect, that lesson so profound and so important. This servant, which we see in our passage here, is dying. And it's possible, perhaps probable, that the servant that we see here, the slave, is is a boy. And the death that this young uh, servant or slave is facing, says that he is ready to die, close to death, is not an easy death. In fact, Matthew actually gives us a little more information to what takes place. And he says of this servant, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. From the two passages put together, many scholars and 
and historians suggest that what this slave may have had uh, was a rheumatic fever, which would fit with the symptoms that were shown in Scripture. The symptoms of rheumatic fever are a sudden onset of very intense and painfully inflamed um, uh, joints. It comes out in skin rashes, painful skin rashes, involuntary twitches in the body, fever and chest pains. It is a, a difficult and very debilitating disease. And it would seem, that we don't know for sure, but certainly the symptoms described here are that it has come on suddenly, it is very painful, it is leaving him stuck and very, very close to death. So this is a sudden and traumatic event that takes place here. And in the context of this event where this this young servant is very close to dying and dying in a very painful and very uh, horrible fashion, we find a soldier who is helpless. A helpless soldier. Now, centurions, we know, are known for getting things done. That's what they, they do. And here, this centurion is completely helpless. He is a man, as a centurion, who has great resources at his disposal, great influence under his command. He has training, he has resources, and everything that he has at his disposal is useless. The doctors that he's able to get can't do anything. The, the, the resources that he has available to him in his skills and his talent and his influence and everything that he has available to him which he would normally call on to get him out of trouble or to get him to a place of safety is now completely useless. He has no way to help here. Nothing at his disposal is able to help. With a servant dying in pain, this soldier is helpless. So that puts us into a desperate situation. It's where we find him a desperate situation where uh, we find the circumstances. You know, one of the, the aspects, you know, and, and I'm going to draw out a number of the aspects of, of this thing which are compelling and intriguing. Because there's so much to this short, short little event here, this story which is is quite intriguing and out of the ordinary and which just draws our attention. And one of those things which is compelling about this is that this whole thing, this whole event, focuses on a slave. This is all about a slave. This isn't a family member of the centurion. It's not a close friend of the centurion. It's not a high-ranking official in the Roman guard or even in the Jewish hierarchy. It's not a respected townsperson. It's a slave. That's where all of this trouble is coming from. In those days, there were different types of slaves, different categories of slaves that would go on. Some were owned as part of the estate, so they would simply get passed on, and their children and children would get passed on with the family. So when the, the father died, that slave and his family would be passed on to the son. And, and in many times, that became an advantageous place for the slave to be. It meant that there was a future for them and for their family. And many of those, not all, but many of them found themselves in places where that was a great 
benefit to them, would provide for them. And sometimes the slaves were treated horribly. And other times the slaves were treated with great respect. Some slaves even held respected places in society, depending on what they did. So for instance, doctors could even be slaves and often were slaves of, of, of people. We don't know why, but this is a very special servant. There is something about this young man that is very special to the heart of this centurion. He's not just a good servant, but what we find from our passage here is that he is a loved servant. He's described in verse 2 when a certain centurion servant who was dear to him. Dear to him means that he was one who had uh, deep affection, highly honored. The centurion thought very greatly of this servant here. In verse 7, the the word servant that's used there is is a different uh, Greek word than the other servants and is often used of a son. And so it's possible, perhaps, to read this in a way, and certainly from from verse 2 where it describes him as dear, but even with that, that extra servant at the other end, that the centurion thought of this servant not just as a slave but as a son. That's how deeply his affection was for this young man. Clearly, he loved him deeply. And so, in desperation, he seeks Jesus. He is driven to seek Jesus. It's not an uncommon situation to be in. A man who is able to control a region. He's in charge of a region He leads a group of a hundred soldiers. He is now unable to do what he most wants to do, what he most needs to do. We all at some point in our life pride ourselves on our strength and our independence until we come to that place when we're completely helpless. Where all the resources we have, where all the training we have, where all the the character we have, where everything that we have built up and thought we've built up over the years and in our life comes to a place where we can do nothing with it. We can't achieve what we most need with everything that we have gained. And that's where this centurion is. And so in his desperate situation, he makes a desperate petition. It tells us here that he had heard of Jesus. So when he heard about Jesus, verse 3, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. He'd heard about Jesus. And so he's driven to Jesus because he needs help. He desperately needs help. Now, Jesus is not unknown there. We're in the town of Capernaum, we're told in the first verse, of our past passage. So Jesus is not unknown in Capernaum. That was his unofficial headquarters. Peter's home was there, and so they would often stay there. They would move in and out, and so much of what Jesus does is centered in Capernaum or around Capernaum. The sermon we've just heard was was uh, preached just outside of the town. 
It was uh, on the sea right there where Jesus, just previous to this, has walked across the water at night and calmed the storm. He's fed the 5,000 men and their families just around a short walk from Capernaum. So much has happened just in the very last few days and weeks around Capernaum that there is much to know about Jesus, much they've seen. One of the things we also know about what takes place here is this centurion is involved with the synagogue. He has influence there and friends there, and it's probable that he is part of that, a proselyte, probably, to Judaism. So he knew of Jesus, and it's possible that even in those times where Jesus had been at the synagogue there and taught, that he'd heard him. So he knew Jesus. He certainly had heard what Jesus had been saying, and he'd heard about the miracles that Jesus had done around him if he hadn't seen any of by himself. It seems clear this is a man who is looking for truth. The centurion is looking for God and hoping to find it. And God is drawing him to himself and he brings him to this moment. This moment in his life. But not only do we find that he had heard of Jesus, but it's clear from the actions of this man that it goes beyond just mere interest. He has a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding of Jesus than just mere interest. And we see that in the way that he talks to Jesus and and of Jesus here. We learn that here is a, a man who believes Jesus. He has come to believe who Jesus is. We'll see he has an understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, a deeper understanding, Jesus himself says, than many of the others around him, even those who should have known better. So this moment of desperation, this moment of tragedy, is the catalyst that is going to move him to Jesus. He's going to be moved from being an onlooker, one who looks on to Jesus and believes what he hears Jesus says and believes what Jesus does and even has a, a solid belief in who Jesus is but is still looking from the outside. This event in his life is going to be the catalyst which moves him from the outside to embrace Jesus, to embrace him wholly and fully. His eyes finally opened. Some of the lessons we can learn from him are firstly that real faith results in action and secondly real faith realizes our unworthiness. Part of the compelling things about this story is the character of the man. We find here in this centurion that he is an honorable man. And I want to draw out just a couple of the characteristics of this man, the nature of this man that we see to show that. One of the things that we see here is that he is trustworthy. He is a man that is trustworthy. Historically, centurions are seen as honorable men. And in fact, every time the New Testament speaks of centurions, it speaks in a favorable manner of them. The historian Polybius describes the qualities of centurions as being steadfast, faithful, solid leaders. They were a significant part of the Roman machine. They were uh, the, the leaders of a group of 100 men. 
And then they were again under their leader who was under uh, another, but they were the significant leaders of a, a hundred men. They were not generally, centurions were not generally, the, the adventurous attacking warrior. So these were not usually the men that were sent out right to the front lines to, to battle and to take ground and to gain ground for uh, the Romans, but they were generally the ones whose job was to hold ground to stay there, to establish rule, and to to bring peace, and to keep the peace where the Romans had taken over. That was their their job. They were steady, trustworthy, faithful, and dependable. That was their job. Everything we learn about this centurion here suggests that's exactly what this man was like. Steady, faithful, and dependable. But not only was he trustworthy, it becomes very, very clear that he is compassionate. You know, often when we think of Roman soldiers, the first thing that comes to our mind is men who are hard and cruel and ruthless. We think of the battling soldier and uh, and perhaps some of the things we've seen in movies and other places. And they certainly could be. Just a a look at what takes place through the crucifixion shows us that the the cruelty that Roman soldiers could have could be second to none. They could be a very cruel people. But this man certainly wasn't. He was not a hard, cruel, and ruthless man. He was a man of compassion, of love, and of decency. See that in the way that he treats a slave and the way that he interacts with the people around him, the way that he exchanges with Jesus, everything about his interaction here shows him to be a compassionate man and that compassion is clearly reciprocated. People have respect for him. Part of that comes from one of his other characteristics and that not only is he trustworthy and compassionate, but he's also generous. The passage tells us here that one of the reasons that the Jews give to Jesus about this man for coming to him is that he built them a synagogue. They had a synagogue built for them by him. The text would seem to suggest that the synagogue he built was built from his own money, not from the coffers of the Romans, but he did this on his own, out of his own pocket. Archaeology has found a synagogue in Capernaum, and if you Google it, you can find pictures uh, of the synagogue there. And it's unlikely that the one that that you see in the pictures is the same one, but probably built uh, over or added to this original one. And it's a beautiful place. Descriptions, at least that history suggests to us about this one, suggest that it had great marble and beautiful white uh, limestone uh, through it, so it wasn't just a cheap... Uh, throwaway tent. I say these things, these at least these three few things about this man that he's trustworthy, compassionate, and generate, generous, because I want you to see that he is a good and decent man. This centurion is a good and decent man. You know, we talk uh, about sin often and how it makes us enemies of God and how it condemns us to hell. And these are true, and they are true of all of us. Sin makes us enemies with God, and it does indeed condemn us to hell. But being unsaved doesn't make you 
the vilest, most despicable person incapable of doing any good that could possibly be. In uh, theological terms, we talk about total depravity, but total depravity doesn't mean that you will be as depraved, as wicked, and as evil as you can be, that there is no possibility of you being or doing good. What it does say is that we are completely incapable of saving ourselves from our sin. So he is an honorable man. And in that honor, we find that he is also a respected man. Here is yet another one of the very intriguing aspects of this story. And perhaps you've caught this already. It's perhaps the greatest conundrum of the story here. A Roman soldier asks the Jewish leaders to intercede for him with a local rabbi. That's the context here. Consider that for a minute. A Roman soldier is asking Jewish leaders to intercede for him. Two groups of people which despise one another. The Jews hated the Romans. And the Romans thought the Jews were just filthy dogs. Not worthy of anything. Now the Jews not only do this, not only go to Jesus and intercede for him, but this text here tells us that they begged him earnestly. These Jewish leaders, these these elders of the the synagogue and of the, the city there, go to Jesus and they don't just say, Jesus, there is a, uh, a, a ruler here, a Roman ruler here who wants to see you. He's asked us, so we tell you. They go to him and they beg on his behalf. That is an intriguing situation to find in the scriptures. These Jews intercede for this Gentile. But not only do they intercede and they beg for him, one of the reasons they give for Jesus to come is because he deserves it. These Jewish leaders are speaking to Jesus, a man who they don't have a great deal of respect for, generally speaking, as a whole, come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, you should heal this man's slave because he is worthy. He is a man which has great respect here in this community. They don't seek Jesus on his behalf for grace and compassion. It tells us they come to Jesus and they ask him and they try to prove that he merits Jesus working. They go to Jesus based on those characteristic traits we saw before, that he was indeed a good and decent man. And because he is a good and decent man and they have gained from him, these men go to Jesus and they say he is worthy for you to act. Tragedy here is that it's the religious leaders who are getting it wrong. They fall into the same trap that so many of us fall into. That was their system. It's our natural system to prove to God that we're worthy of his acceptance. To prove, say, 
Why, why should Jesus do this for you? Because he's a good man. Because he's done these good things. And that's how the Jews intercede for this man with Jesus. Not only is he an honorable man and a respectable man, but we find here that he is an unworthy man. And we learn that he is an unworthy man, not because that's the way we see him, but because that's how he sees himself. He is a humble man. The Jews had put words into the centurion's mouth. While he is honorable and he is respectable, he is also humble. As a leader, he understands his place, he tells us. That last speech he gives, for I also am a man placed under authority and having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He knew his place. As a man, he understands his place, and the, the feelings of his humility is exaggerated by the intense circumstances in which he finds himself here, that he is, everything around him is out of control, and he knows that he cannot do anything about it. He is reaching out to Jesus because he knows he can't fix it. He needs someone greater. He knows that this is beyond him. No matter how good he is, no matter how many resources he has, no matter how much good he has done, he cannot save his servant. So he knows the truth about himself. The Jews want Jesus to act because the centurion is a good man who deserves it. But the centurion knows differently, and he says he doesn't deserve it. That's why he sent the Jews in the first place, he tells us. He says, I sent these Jews out to you because I wasn't worthy, he says, to go myself. And then, as Jesus gets closer and closer to his home, he sends out his friends and he says, as Jesus is getting closer, the the guilt rises within him and the unworthiness rises. And he sends out his friends and says, Jesus, don't even bother coming in closer. You're not worthy to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. He is overwhelmed with his guilt and he tries to stop Jesus coming knowing that Jesus doesn't need to be there to do what needs to be done we can do a lot of good things but we can never do enough good to wash away our sin the centurion knew his good deeds weren't going to impress Jesus and so that brings us to the last of the lessons real faith receives grace he recognizes jesus authority and he submits to jesus he knows about authority and power that's what that speech he gave was about i'm under authority and i'm in authority i tell people to go and they go and they come so he knows what authority and power is about he knows how that works as a soldier he's subject to it and he is empowered by authority the centurion's words carry great weight And here, he refuses to exercise his authority because he knows he's outranked. He knows he cannot do what he has, and he can't do, no matter how authoritative his word is, no matter how much influence his word has, he cannot raise his servant from sickness. But he recognizes Jesus can. 
He says, I don't have authority, but there is a man who does. He does have authority. The authority of the centurion's words won't heal his servant, but the authority of Jesus' words will. That's why he says, all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. See, the centurion knew the power of word and he knew the power of Jesus' word when it carries authority. See, faith is submitting yourself to the authority of Jesus. And that's what the centurion was doing. It's recognizing that you can't seek God based on what you think you deserve. It's recognizing who you really are and surrendering to Jesus. So he submits to Jesus, and he submits to Jesus, believing the power of Jesus. He believes it. He's not seeking extra blessing here. He's not seeking God's presence here. He's not like others do, saying, if I could just touch his garment, it would be better. Or if I could could get him to, to do this or be here and do that. He's not seeking for anything more. He believes the power and the authority of God's word. He says all Jesus needs to do is say the word, and the authority of the word of a man in that position will do what needs to be done. There's no bargaining with God. There's no proof of power looked for. He has heard and he has seen Jesus and he knows that Jesus is able to be believed. And the same is true today. Jesus promises that if you confess your sin and seek his forgiveness, he will save you. That is his word. Do you believe the power of his word? So when we recognize uh, the Jesus' authority receives the grace of Jesus. You want to know the other compelling thing I see in this story? It says in verse 4, uh, or sorry, uh, in verse 6, after the Jews had come to him and pleaded with him, then Jesus went with them. There's... See, what we have, what makes that so intriguing is we have here in this situation a Gentile seeking through Jews who come to Jesus and try to prove the worthiness of a Gentile for God to do something, and Jesus goes. He goes. Jesus doesn't brush them off. He didn't say, no, I'm only here for the house of Israel. I'm not not interested in in the the, the dogs. I'm not here for the Gentiles. I don't want to hear about it. I'm here for something else. He, He doesn't brush them off and say, well, you say he's worthy. He's not worthy. I'm not going to go to such a man of of pride. He goes. And because he goes, that both shocks and terrifies the centurion. The centurion was not expecting Jesus to come to his house. He was expecting Jesus simply to say the word and his servant would be healed if he did it. And Jesus starts coming. And the closer Jesus gets to his house, the more unworthiness builds in him and the more shock and terror builds within the heart of the centurion because Jesus is coming. He did not expect Jesus to come. 
Jesus always comes to those who approach him in faith. No matter where you're from. No matter what your background. He always comes to those who approach him in faith. No matter who you are or what you've done. We've seen Jesus just in the gospel of Luke. Go to the lowest of society and save them. His own disciple Matthew. We have seen Jesus go to the religious who have rejected him. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And here, Jesus goes to a man of great honor. Any station, any place in life, when we approach Jesus in faith, he always comes. Always. So Jesus rejoices in his faith. He is moved by his faith. He calls it exemplary. And he draws attention to it. He says, this is what I'm looking for. This is the faith that is true and real. The same is true for us. He always rejoices in faith. And the result is that there is rejoicing in the grace of Jesus. Jesus healed him. They go back to the home and they find the slave healed. It says he is well, which means he is in good health. Not improving, not temporary relief. He is fully restored to health. He is given life. At one moment, he was near death. And now he is not. He is fully healthy. Faith in Jesus always results in life. The joy is brought to the household and Jesus is glorified. We'll see that as we move further into our text next week. In the life and the faith of the centurion... Jesus is glorified. In the eyes of the people, Jesus is glorified. In the hearts of his disciples, Jesus is glorified. Real faith brings blessing to us and glory to God. This is a moving, moving passage of Scripture. It's raw with emotion. Perhaps it's a situation which is easily recognizable in our lives. In a place where we have been. Lived good, honorable lives, seemingly in control. We're not in control. And we're easily in situations where we have absolutely no control. Perhaps, like the centurion... The catalyst God uses to bring you to faith in Christ is that moment of no control. Where we finally recognize that all the resources I have, all the good I have done, everything that I have amassed and thought was worth it is useless. I need Jesus. That moment you realize it's time to stop watching on from afar. It's time to stop thinking that Jesus is good or to to thinking that that he is, is worth believing but not embracing and time to move and embrace Christ as Savior. The centurion's faith is an example to us. It is a good example to us. And we know it's a good example to us because Jesus says it is a good example to us. Don't try to overcomplicate it. 
Don't try to work yourself into it. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Trust him and he will come to you. He will save you from your sin. He will come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. And Lord, at times it can be so deep and intricate and, and delicate and requires teasing out and pulling apart and examining in such depth and such detail and will draw us in further and further with each little detail. And at times, there is also a beautiful simplicity to it. As we watch things unfold in a life and see the beauty of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you did in this centurion's life and for the example that he has set us thousands of years later to know true faith. Encourage us, dear God. Draw us more closely to you. Encourage us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.